Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We are now in the fourth chapter, 1 Peter chapter 4, and our text this morning is verses 1 to 6, 1 to 6. And as we begin our time this morning, we're going to to play just a quick game. We like to play games sometimes, right? This This is called the guess who game. And the purpose of this game is to explain true life choices and the reason for those choices, okay? This is why we're going to play the guess who, okay? The purpose of this game is to explain true life choices and the reason why they made those choices, okay? Are you ready to go? You just shout it out when you're ready, okay? Who chose to obey God and go to prison rather than to lay with Potiphar's wife? Yes, (laughs) Drew. Who chose to live for God's glory by proclaiming the gospel on three missionary trips, being shipwrecked, famished, whipped, beaten, and dragged through the streets? Oh, yeah, first one right there, very good. Who chose to magnify Christ and confront sin in his preaching and then said, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do while being stoned? Good, Steve. <laughs> Who, according to Christian and pagan history, was sawn in two for proclaiming the one true God? Yeah, good. Thank you. Isaiah. If no one got that, I was going to say, the hint is, though your sins are as scarlet. Who wrote that? That would have, I think, given it away. Isaiah, that's right. Who chose to endure ill treatment instead of enjoying the passing pleasures of sin? (laughs) (laughs) Let me finish the sentence. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt and looking to the reward chose to endure suffering because he saw him who is unseen. Now you can say it. Moses. What's that? That's right. Good job. Hebrews 11. Uh, Another one's coming to mind uh, just at, at this moment. Um, who was beheaded uh, by Herod Antipas because he confronted him with his sin and proclaimed the gospel. John the Baptist. Last one. Who, according to church history, chose to be crucified upside down on a cross because he thought... (laughs) You guys are bad. You're bad. Because he thought himself not worthy to be crucified as his Lord. Peter, thank you again for the second time. Peter, and speaking of Peter, the apostle Peter, Peter's main aim in our text this morning is to help Christians arm themselves for suffering and actually choose suffering over sin. And so we'll see in our text today our theme. And our theme is, how the consideration of Christ's sufferings urges the Christian onward in holiness. And that might sound strange to you. Um, In fact, this morning, if your mind and heart is not fresh in the word of God and in coming worshiping him, it might sound strange. It might sound very difficult, and that's perfectly normal. 
But our theme is how the consideration of Christ's sufferings urges the Christian onward in holiness. We'll see this in our text in point number one, the model and ministry of suffering. The model and ministry of suffering. We see this in the beginning of our passage in 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That one sentence is a mouthful. But this brings us to letter A, understanding Christ's example of suffering and our motive for doing the same. Christ's example of suffering and our motive for doing the same. Our text reads, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Now, (laughs) we've seen already in Peter's letter this incredible model of how to suffer injustice and our calling to suffer in the same righteous manner. Flip back to chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, and you'll remember this model, this example of Christ's suffering in our place and calling us to also suffer with him. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. For you... Christian, have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." Now, the centerpiece of our armor in suffering is Jesus, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the savior of the world, the perfectly innocent one, the son of God, chose suffering as his vocation and called us to take up our cross and follow him and so find real and everlasting life. How does that settle with you this morning? Our purpose is to suffer with him and for the same exact reasons, for righteousness' sake. So in our passage today, as the text reads, since Jesus suffered in the flesh, that is unto death, even death on a cross, we have the command to arm ourselves with the same purpose. Letter B, the Christian's preparation and purpose. (laughs) So what is this masochistic, kamikaze-like language? Well, in our context today, the reason, the purpose for such language is to continually be putting sin to death. Because sin will ultimately be put to, to, to death By our death. To arm oneself is Ephesians 6 language, is it not? Remember, put on the full 
armor of God, this is a part of your armament that you put on, is arming yourselves in preparation for suffering. Arm yourselves with the same purpose, that is to obey the will of God as it concerns suffering for Christ. As it concerns suffering for Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, those who desire to live a godly life, who desires to live a godly life today? It's very quiet. I heard a pin drop. Who desires to live a godly life for the glory of Jesus Christ? Okay, then 2 Timothy 3.12 says, those who desire to live that godly life in union with Christ will suffer persecution to some degree in some form. <laughs> it sort of makes you think in Philippians, how Paul pours out his heart, right? I still scratch my head when I, when I read these portions in Philippians where Paul says, Things like he considers it a joy to suffer with Christ, to be in the bonds with, with, with Christ for the sake of the gospel. Question, is the will of God hard to talk about when it comes to suffering for righteousness' sake? And we can be honest and we can answer. Is the will of God hard to talk about when it comes to suffering for righteousness' sake? Listen, <laughs> I think of what a softy I am sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I don't even want my children to suffer injury playing outside. I don't want them to, to be sick, right, ever. Let alone do I want them to suffer mockery or even violence because they're living for Jesus Christ. Yet, yet, Peter says, like a soldier... Arm, prepare, equip yourself for this very purpose. Why? Again, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, I know we all sit back and we think, I, I get that. Okay, upon death, cease from sin. Yeah, no kidding. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. He who has suffered in the flesh that is unto death has ceased from sin. Aren't you excited about that day? I mean, we're not excited about dying, uh, the process, right? But upon our death, we know cease from sin, glorified bodies, no longer to sin anymore. The streets of gold are cool, the pearly gates awesome, all these things will be great, but I will no longer sin against my Savior. But in regards to this text, especially as he shifts to verse 2 here, in other words, what we could say is, if you trust God enough to suffer for doing what is right, as chapter 3 verse 17 says in our text, then you have made a decisive break with sin. If you trust God enough to suffer for doing what is right, no matter what that cost may be, that's further proof that you've made a decisive break with sin. And so this brings us to letter C, the Christians dying to sin and living unto Christ, unto Christ. As verse 2 says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So 
in that the Christian chooses suffering for righteousness sake, arms himself with that purpose, this proves the breaking away from that habitual practice and lifestyle of sin. Why? Because as we'll see in a moment, this really shows what or who we live for. Is it God's will or is it man's will that we live for? And so though we still live in our unredeemed flesh, these temporary tents uh, that are ours right now, we no longer live for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And the will of God is that we become more and more like God, like our Savior. Just as Peter, back in chapter 1, verse 14 of our book, says, as he commanded us, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Let's summarize Romans chapter 6. Here we go. The redeemed die to sin and live unto Christ. The redeemed are in the business of dying to sin and living to Christ. Galatians 5.24. Paul says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. What language? That is intentional killing. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One more. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Man, does this verse stick with me. Reason being, one Friday afternoon, I thought I was suffering. I was having a bad day. Now, if I were to tell you what these things, what it was about, you would, you'd laugh. Just like we all can get caught up in the small little difficult issues of, of life and such, right? But man, I was having a bad day. And so I pour out my complaints, not to God, but to my wife on the phone. About 10 minutes later, she sends me a series of texts of, of, of just loving, encouraging words. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's good. Oh, that makes me feel better. Oh, good, thank you. Oh, good. And then she sends me one more text, and it's this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.15, and she said nothing else after it. And I, I'm walking. I'm outside walking down the road, reading it. And it says, as, as our passage says, Christ died for you so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. That, that stung me and that healed me um, so well that afternoon. I can't say I received it as well as I receive it today, but that was very helpful. Christ died for you so that you might no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. And that's the will of God. <laughs> How does that settle with, with most of the world, the, most of the Christian world today? Christ died so that you may not lo no longer live for yourself, but live for him who died and rose again for you. <laughs> right? We no longer live for and in context of our passage, the lusts of men, 
but the will of God. And that is, the will of God is to suffer for righteousness' sake. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter then transitions here to a loving yet sort of in-your-face reason for not living the rest of their time on earth for the lusts of men in verse 3. As he says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. (laughs) This brings us to point two, the meandering and muddling of sin, verses 3 to 5. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. This is a picture of the Gentile, Gentile really means pagan, pagan nations. This was us before Christ, was it not? We lived our lives meandering and muddling in the cesspool of sin, the sewage waste place of iniquity. And maybe you haven't been specifically involved in the list that is here in our text this morning, but you know that your mind, that your heart has entertained it at some point or points in your life before Christ. Don't you love that song? All I have is Christ, that line. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, right? Indifferent to the cost. You were running full speed ahead that hell-bound race, and you didn't know it. (laughs) You didn't know it. Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving, serving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living, living in malice and envy. Now, this phrase that Peter uses here, the time already passed is sufficient for you. In other words, if you were to like break that down, enough. Peter's saying, enough. Enough time has passed by for you to have solemnized, to have Corinthianized your life. Your time to have played Solomon is done. Game over. That life you once lived in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is out of existence. It has gone out of existence. (laughs) The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. You're a new creation in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. This brings us to letter A, seeking and savoring sin. Remember the text here, carried carried out the desires and pursued this course. Jeremiah 17, right? The heart is desperately sick. Who can understand this? Look at this list briefly. Look how one draws draws upon another. These six that are listed here in your text have dependency upon one another, all with varying degrees, shades, and colors, but they all have dependency upon one another. This list that we see here before our eyes, this is the fast 
crowd's lifestyle. Some people join this fast crowd in an instant, and some slowly enter into it over months or years. And you don't have to go to Dallas or or Las Vegas to join this, this fast crowd of seeking and savoring sin. So the first one we see, sensuality, sensuality. Um, this is unbridled passions, uh, licentiousness, wantonness, filthy, outrageous, shamelessness. The heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick. Romans 1.30, he says it this way, they are inventors of evil, inventors of evil. Galatians 5, 19 and following, Paul lists the deeds of the flesh. Remember we listed there before he hits the fruit of the spirit? And the deeds of the flesh, he's listing, he's listening, he's listening, and then he says, and things like these. And things like these. So sensuality here is really the rainbow uh, over it all. Um, as we flow down our list here, it's the, it's the, it's the feeling of just operating off of the senses, which is sensual. And and, and it oftentimes has to do with sexual immorality, just as the next one does. But this is really the the big foundation of the feeling of anything goes. Anything goes. You name it, we do it. Sensuality. And it brings us to lust. Lust is that strong craving Um, a desire for what is forbidden, passionate longings. And I love, don't you love how the Apostle Paul uses this word for his, though for his, in in a holy term, as he says he desires nothing but Christ. Desires, it's the same word in Philippians 1, epithumia. It's the same word that Paul uses except in his love for Christ. But the lusts here is obviously in reference to sin. Desire for what is forbidden. And you don't have to go back to your first parents to understand this. (laughs) You just go to your heart and you see the world to understand this. Drunkenness, it then leads to drunkenness. This is, well, you tell me, what what is drunkenness? What would you say drunkenness is? Out of control? Okay. Numbing your inhibitions. Yeah. What else? Anything else? Consumption of your sin. Okay. Yeah. We, we've known, we've known, perhaps some of you um, have come out of this. Um, wrecked lives, or hurt lives, um, death, of course, in those, those instances, simply means excess of wine. <laughs> You're going way far above and beyond um, the excess of wine. And as Ephesians 5.18 says, we are to be controlled by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, not by drink. This then leads to carousing, as you see in our text. 
This is the reveling, rioting, letting loose, late night indulgences, the process of drunken fellows strolling about seeking the next thrill or buzz, carousing, carousing. See how it's just getting looser and looser and looser as we go through our text? And then there's, there's drinking parties. I mean, this is really, we're really getting to, there's no shame here. Where before, maybe in drunkenness and drink, there would be that conscience. That but you're just, you're, you're heading headlong into the lusts of men. Drinking parties, that is banqueting, a gathering, com- comfortable fellowship, just like Israel and Aaron uh, became while Moses was on the mountain, right? Remember, they rose up to play, and we know what that means. They weren't hitting the ball around. They were letting these things loose. And then abominable idolatries. This is detestable, unlawful idolatries. Even in the sense of, even so much of the unbelieving world says, what are you doing? What, what is that? That's not good. That's unlawful. Abominable idolatries (laughs) ranging from the golden calf to the worship of self. And that's ultimately what idolatry is, right? It is the worship of self in whichever form. It is full dedication. It is a slave to the depraved ideas of the flesh. You are a slave. Remember what sin is, right? It's that cruel taskmaster. And so it brings us all the way down to abominable idolatries. So so we mark that passage of time carrying out the desires of the Gentiles as a thing of the past. Those years without Christ were wasted. The time between our physical birth and our new birth, our entire career before Christ was a corrupt one, was it not? But in regeneration, we become sick of it. And we now see it for what it all really is, don't we? It's a wretched treadmill of transgression against the one and only kind, holy God. John MacArthur has said it well. Sin in the believer is a burden which afflicts him rather than a pleasure which delights him. Why? Because now we see the beauty and glory of Christ who suffered for us. We've come now to hate our sin and bad habits, and, and we choose suffering for Christ's sake rather than caving into sin and running the course we once ran. The believer is to be found considering Christ's sufferings and all that that implies for us salvation, sanctification, glorification. We consider Christ's sufferings, and that urges the suffering believer onward in the pursuit of purity and holiness, which is the will of God. And because you are now made alive in Christ, and you now live for the will of God instead of the lusts of men, the crowd you once ran with is surprised that you're not like them anymore, right? So that brings us to to let her be surprised you don't stride. They are surprised you don't stride with them. In all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. 
They find it strange that you do not run on their turf anymore. This word run is a a strong word with purpose, not a running aimlessly sort of a jog in life. It means to rush together, to hastily assemble, to plunge into fully. It's the same word used in Mark 6, where the crowds would flock hurriedly after hearing of Jesus' miracles. And in Acts 3, when the crowds ran to see Peter and the apostles after healing the lame man. Again, this was, was us. We were truly running at full speed that hell-bound race. This phrase, the same excesses of dissipation, literally means the pouring out of abandonment. They are so surprised that you're just not pouring out your abandonment to God and living like them. Pour out your abandonment, man, full throttle. So stiff-necked, hell-bent toward your sin without shame to the point of rioting in hearty agreement for your sin, just like the shamelessness that the prodigal son had in Luke 15. So what do they do since you don't join them? What do they do? They malign you. They malign you. It's, it's, the Greek word is easy to translate. It's blasphemeo. You can figure out what that means, right? They blaspheme you. That is, they speak evil against you. <gasps> How could you speak evil against me? I'm doing what's right. I'm preaching, teaching the gospel. I'm, I'm living a, a, a pure life for the glory of God. They speak evil against you. And that's, that's exactly what the heart, the, the, the heart does. That's how it thinks about righteousness. The unredeemed heart thinks this way about righteousness, true righteousness. Isaiah 1, right? They call bitter, what do they call bitter? Sweet. They call evil good and vice versa. They call light darkness and darkness light. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. And you're singing that song now, and, you're, and now they, they're speaking evil of you. They're blaspheming you. Sounds a little like someone else we know that we are worshiping this morning in our first and second hour, our Savior. And so like Romans 1, they are stunned, they're amazed that you don't give hearty approval to sensuality, drunkenness, lusts of all kinds, especially, especially in the Greco-Roman world of oppression under Nero, where these sins would have been a great temporal escape to feel good, especially in a context like such. They're surprised. And so we see their reaction to your ditching sin for Christ isn't just being surprised that you don't stride with them. Their reaction in the end is that they will be summoned to speak. Summoned to speak and spend. Verse five, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
This is quite sobering. This is quite humbling. Acts 10.42, Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Because how they treat disciples of Christ is how they treat him. And, and how they treated Christ is how they will treat his children. Jesus warned us of this. They will malign them. Therefore, they, the maligners, they will give account. That word account is actually the word logos. They will give that word to him on that day. They will not only report to him their lives of abominable idolatries, they will report how they maligned and treated God's people at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20. This is the judgment of unbelievers in which they are judged according to their works and sentenced to everlasting punishment in the lake of fire. Romans 2.6 says that God will give to each person according to what he has done. This is quite humbling, isn't it? It kind of makes you just stop and think for a moment of the cries of the damned in hell and to think of where they're going and the reason why and to know that God is holy, he is just and he cannot be questioned. And think too, that the believer will be judged, but we know that it's not the great white throne judgment, it's the Bema seat judgment, as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians. We will be judged. But that's the judge of our deeds done in our body post-salvation and whatever that we have in our life, and our ministry, post-salvation does not stand. It will be burned away and we will come into his presence. But this judgment is not that. They will eternally give account but even beyond this, as, as MacArthur notes, to give account means to pay back. So, so those who have pursued a course of lewdness and maligning believers are amassing a debt to God, which they will spend all eternity paying back. Can you fathom that? Can you wrap your mind around that reality? I can't. And so they will not only speak of what they've done, they will spend eternity under holy judgment which they cannot ever be bailed out of. Peter gives this truth as an encouragement. It's an encouragement to the church at Rome for how they've been treated. Romans 12, remember? Paul quotes from Proverbs, but Paul says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And yet, the believer does not rejoice and gloat in this. But Peter gives the church this truth so that they are not overcome by the slanderous evil of Christ haters. And so that they instead may overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21, right? Remember what he says to your, if your enemy is hungry, what? Do what? Yeah, feed him. Give him something to drink. We overcome persecution and those maligning us by considering Christ's sufferings. 
in our place and his subsequent victory over death and his enthronement at God's right hand, which we saw last week. And such truth would embolden and spur the persecuted Christian onward to purity and holiness in order to truly stand firm in suffering. This brings us to the the mission and ministry of the Savior in verse 6. Peter says, For the gospel, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. A quick clearing up here. A quick clearing up. Because at first glance here, uh, many, many, many throughout the ages have, have thought that Peter is offering a, a, a chance to accept Christ after death. To accept Christ after death. For those who rejected him while they were alive. Um, That's silly. If you read the Bible, you see that that's not true. Just two quick points on that. Luke 16, 26, Jesus is giving the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and he explains it this way. There's that great chasm that is fixed over which no one can cross. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So the purpose for which this gospel has been preached in context is that by the time this letter gets to the church, believers will have died for their faith in Christ. And though they have been judged, died in the flesh as all men do, and maligned for their faith in Christ, yet, yet, yet they will truly live. They will live in the spirit. They will live unto the will of of God. Because the gospel was preached to them, these martyrs live forever according to God's gospel purpose. Here's why the gospel has been preached so that you, dear church, may be with God in heaven. <laughs> you have been Born again, 1 Peter 1.23, by the living and enduring word of God. And though you may die for your faith, you will truly live. So what is the power and promise and purpose of the gospel? We could, we could list a thousand passages this morning the mission and ministry of the Savior in light of coming judgment? Just one verse. How about that in answering that question? The purpose, the power, the promise of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18, which really starts the beginning of the flow of this entire section to where we are this morning, to the end of verse 6 of chapter 4. Here's the power, promise, and purpose of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might. How's this simple phrase land with you this morning? Bring us to God. Right? So that he might bring us 
us to God. How? Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Upon which, as we heard last week, Christ did proclaim the power of his gospel to those who are now in prison, the spirits who are now in prison. So our summary of verse six is believers who have died live in the spirit the way God does because key verb, main verb, the gospel was preached to them. It was kerusoed to them. This is the town crier, the proclamation, the giving forth of the words of life. Whether that is from a preacher yelling from a pulpit the truth or a street evangelist or that quiet person who that day in the coffee shop quietly, softly spoke the gospel to you or simply gave you that gospel track because the gospel was preached to them. He's reminding them of the words of life that had been proclaimed to them. What, what, what comfort and encouragement this must have been for those presently suffering for righteousness' sake at the hands of evil men. Their brothers and sisters in Christ who have suffered and died for their faith in Christ are alive and well with God in heaven because of the life-saving word of the, the foolishness of the message preached. The gospel was given to them. And because your Savior suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, the same inner attitude that Christ had as, he's, as he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Father, not my will be done, but, but yours, but yours. Think of it the strongest and best arguments against sin are taken from the sufferings of Christ. <laughs> you, you, you perhaps struggle with entertaining that sin which you once ran the course in with? Run to Calvary's foothill. Run to the foot of the cross and see if you can fulfill it there. Because you can't. <laughs> As you preach the gospel to yourself, you can't. Do we always run there? No. <laughs> Praise him that his grace is greater than our sin. But the strongest and best arguments against sin are taken from the sufferings of Christ. He suffered and died to destroy sin. He cheerfully submitted to the worst sufferings while never giving way to the least sin. We give way to the greatest sin while we suffer the least <laughs> And so no longer do the lusts and desires of men rule the believer now. And no longer do we chase after them and run that course because you're a new creation in Christ by the will of God. Because the gospel was for this reason preached to you so that you'd be saved from his eternal wrath and judgment and from sin's eternal consequences and be saved unto your gracious good king. You've been brought near to God and made alive in the spirit. And this brings us to our response. Just two 
responses? How do we apply this? How do we arm ourselves like soldiers of, of Christ to fight the battle of sin? And by the way, can I just say this to the youth this morning? Uh, dear youth, <laughs> we get it. Your parents, us older folks, we get. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. The wiser, the wiser among us, uh, we get the battle. We understand. But don't forget who understands most, but yet never did sin and died in your place. It was Christ, your creator and your savior. Don't be bashful, don't be shy to come to that leader in the church, to your mother, to your father, and to ask them, say, help, help me arm myself for the battle against sin. So that brings us to our, to our application. Number one, arm yourself with an abolition attitude. An abolition attitude, that is enough. Enough. Arm yourself with this thought. Any amount of past sinning is enough. Any, any amount. If you sinned a little before you were converted, it's enough. If you sinned a ton before you were converted, it's what? It is enough. That's right. It is enough. Sufficient time has passed. You can never sin so little that you could say, hmm, I need some more time to sin. Right? How many people say, I know I need to get right with God and make a break with sin, but just a little more time. You know, let me get right with God. Oh, well, how do you get right? Let me, let me live life a little bit more. A little more time with sin. No, Peter says, arm yourself with this thought. The time you spent sinning is sufficient. Make the break, choose the will of God, suffer for it if you must. Arm yourselves with an enough attitude because of Christ. Because of him who loved you and gave himself up for you. Two verses on this point. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. Romans 13. Make no provision. You know this morning what that looks like in cracking open that door in making provision for that sin which was once your pet. In Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We can do that. You can do that only as his word richly dwells within you. Arm yourself with an abolition attitude. Number two, Arm yourself with Christ's purpose. That is to suffer triumphantly. We want to suffer triumphantly, don't you? I know I want to. As much of a wimp and as softy as I am, <laughs> I want to suffer triumphantly. The righteous one suffered unto death to defeat sin and death. Therefore, we must be ready to suffer for living righteously according 
to God's will, which the world will mock and scorn. And the worst thing that could happen to us is actually the best thing. Death. (laughs) The worst thing, right? Our adversary's worst, biggest, baddest tool is our entrance to glory. (laughs) God is a genius, isn't he? Peter, the very one who commands us here to arm ourselves with Jesus' purpose, is the one who had to be prepared and armed by Jesus himself with this purpose. You'll remember John 21, 18. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, Peter, and walk wherever you wished. And when you, but when you grow cold, grow old, sorry, cold and old sometimes go together, I know. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you wish to not go. (laughs) Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. (sighs) Peter had to be armed face to face by Christ himself on how to prepare himself for suffering for the gospel, for Christ. Christians are cross bearers, Mark 8, 34. Therefore, our partnership with Jesus brings gladness in tribulations. And by the grace of God, therefore, our desire is to enter suffering even unto death for our faith in Christ with the joy of a bridegroom entering the bridal room. Just a closing moment regarding John Rogers. John Rogers was the the very first of the English martyrs who died under the reign of Bloody Mary, who was a a devout Catholic who hated the Protestants and their freedom of worship. Rogers was made a prisoner in the jail at Newgate in England, January of 1553. His wife and children were not allowed to visit him at all, and there he suffered severe treatment from the jailers for about a year. Rogers was pressured to compromise and renounce the Protestant faith, but he affirmed that he would not. And so with his death would come the sealing of this affirmation. When the time came for his execution, one of the officers asks John Rogers if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and his evil opinion of the sacrifice of the mass. Rogers replied, that which I've preached, I will seal with my own blood. Then said clergy Woodruff, thou art a heretic. John Rogers said in reply, that shall be known at the day of judgment. Rogers was then brought to the stake, quoting, as he's walking to the stake, he is quoting Psalm 51. And witnesses say he had a rejoicing firmness in the face of the fire. His own wife and 11 children met him on the road as he went to the stake. And the youngest of the children being a nursing infant in his mother's arms. 
John Rogers had not yet seen his 11th child until that very day he was walking down that dusty road. (laughs) It's reported that his children assisted him to the stake, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if Rogers was being led to a wedding. (laughs) When he was attached to the post, the fire was lit under him. And when it had taken hold of his legs and shoulders, he, as if feeling no pain, washed his hands in the flame as though it were cold water, some reported. (laughs) After lifting his hands to heaven, mildly and firmly, this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly father. I can only hope, I can only think that a, a truth, that a passage like, like 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 was flowing. Momentarily. Momentarily. Didn't seem like a moment. Probably seemed like eternity. But 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, momentarily, this light affliction, I don't think it felt light. Momentarily, Paul says, this light affliction is producing for us, working for us, an eternal weight of glory. It's actually working for you. The suffering is working for you an eternal weight of glory. Not anything you've done, but the fact that he saved you and you get the privilege to suffer with him. Because John Rogers, I think, had his eyes fixed on the unseen, just as 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, and not on the things that are seen, which are temporal. What a view of eternity. What a view of Christ. John Rogers proved that the grace of God was sufficient to sustain a believer even in the fire because he was armed with Jesus' purpose to suffer triumphantly. Suffering persecution, dear believer this morning, can actually be seen as a gift because it offers us a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus which is fueled by our sure hope in his victory over sin and death and his glorious return. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, merciful Father, uh, we are humbled. We are thankful for who you are and what you've done for sinners like us. You have preached this gospel through your son's life and your word that we may know and live according to your will and no longer for the lusts of men. Your amazing love causes us to love and treasure you more and more. Please, Lord, work in all of us the grace we need to stand firm in suffering, arming ourselves with your purpose so that we may live, suffer, and die well as we fix our eyes on you. To the glory of your name, King Jesus, we pray. Amen.